Well, good morning. Welcome to the Learners Exchange. Uh, today we are in a different series from our normal series, which is called Journey Through the Bible. Today we're in a series that's called School of Theology. And we're going to be thinking about the question of Israel. And my phone is on. Yes, we are recording. What's today's date? This is the 12th of November. We're at Christ the King in Polly's Island. The person speaking is Reverend Roger Rebel. Uh, the series is School of Theology, and the title for today is uh, A Christian Appraisal of, of Israel, or I should say Christian Appraisals or Perspectives uh, on Israel, by which I mean the modern Israeli state. And uh, we decided to do this, of course, because of everything that's happening in that part of the world right now. Uh, so let me say three things before we dive in, and we do have some ground to cover today. There probably won't be a lot of time for question discussion, especially since I'm zipping out of here to go teach uh, Sunday school for the children uh, during the 1045. Um, if you have follow-up questions, if you would like to come in and talk about Romans 9, 10, and 11, for example, which are very relevant to this topic, then just reach out to Angela, and I'd be happy to arrange a time to sit down with you one-on-one or one-on-two to talk through some of this further and to engage some of the questions. It's a massive topic, can't cover everything. What you're going to get is kind of a whistle-stop tour, a bit of history, theology at the center, but also thinking about some socio-political considerations about the modern Israeli state. Uh, it's a sensitive topic. Um, I realize that. Uh, Christians disagree on this subject, and that's okay. There is, you know, There are different valid kind of Christian perspectives because some of the biblical... Um, texts that are relevant to this discussion uh, present different sort of themes that sometimes seem to rub against each other. Uh, so just, I'm, I'm aware of that. I want you to keep that in mind as well. Let's pray. Let's pray for this session. Let's also pray for what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now. Oh God, we thank you. Um, we thank you that you've given us minds that we can learn and grow in our understanding. We thank you for spirit of curiosity that is present in this room amongst those who desire to search out and know your ways and to think thoughts after you. And so we pray that you would be at work in this time together to enlighten us, uh, to give us a better understanding of a very difficult, long, historical, painful, violent situation. And we pray right now for those who are involved in the conflict in Israel and between Gaza well, we pray that terrorism would be rooted out. We pray for all the families on both sides, the children especially, who are, are suffering right now because of this. We pray for those who are working uh, to find a solution that will achieve peace as quickly as possible. We pray for the leaders of, um, of Israel. We pray for the honorable leaders over in Palestine. We pray for our president and our State Department. Well, we pray that justice would prevail that mercy would also be made known. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do to start is just give you a very brief backstory of the modern Israeli state. Some of you probably know a lot about this already, so humor me if you would. Um, the modern nation state of Israel came into existence in the 1940s, 1948 to be precise, following, unsurprisingly, the Holocaust of World War II. Uh, that horrendous atrocity implemented by the Nazi regime under the leadership of Adolf Hitler. Uh, this event, the creation of the modern Israeli state, 
uh, created a new political entity in the southern Levant. That's the, technically you know, the part of the world where Israel and Palestine are located. It's known as the southern Levant. It's a cradle of civilization. Uh, it was sanctioned by the United Nations, uh, and it had a lot of support from nations such as Great Britain. Earlier they had issued the Balfour Declaration of Intent, and of course a lot of support from the United States as well. The official date of the uh, incorporation or constitution of the modern Israeli state was the 14th of May, 1948. Prior to that time, the territory in question was a colonial asset. It was governed by the British in an arrangement known as the Palestinian Mandate. And the whole region was known as Palestine, which is also a name that goes back to the Roman age, um, to the, you know, the Imperial Roman age. Um, so it switched from being under the control of the British to self-governance by the new Israeli state on May 14, 1948. And in the decades following, unsurprisingly, a number of intense, intense conflicts arose in opposition to Israel's existence, its reincorporation. The first of those happened on May 15, 1948, the day after. Um, the armories, armies of several neighboring Arab states began to enter the area of the former British Palestinian Mandate, and that ignited what's known as the First Arab-Israeli War. That ended with an armistice, not a peace, but an armistice in 1949 that actually left the Israeli state in control of slightly more territory than eventually had, that had initially been the case in 1947 and 48. Um, <clears throat> No new Arab state was created at that time, given the fact that the territory uh, in question that was not under the control of the Israelis was either held by Egypt or Jordan, Egypt or Jordan. And those countries, at least at that time, didn't show much interest in giving that territory away to be made into a Palestinian state. Um, there was a lot of migration that happened as a result of the first uh, Arab-Israeli war. There were about 700,000 Palestinian Arabs living in this area, and they moved out into neighboring countries like Egypt and Jordan. And there are still huge refugee camps in Jordan, which have actually kind of become towns because people have been living there for several generations now. That's where they went. At the same time, there were Jewish people who were living in other Arab countries, and they left those countries and came into Israel, about 260,000 of those. Uh, however... <clears throat> That eventually, in the next two decades, that figure would bump up from 260 to 650. So 650,000 Jewish people uh, from neighboring Arab countries coming back into Israel. I went to Yemen about 14 years ago, and I visited a town in the Yemen, uh, which was a Jewish, at one time, a Jewish community. Uh, the windows were made of alabaster. The Jews who lived there were craftsmen in alabaster, the same material that the flask that the lady used to anoint Jesus' feet was made of. And... Uh, those Jewish communities had been there for hundreds of years. They're not there anymore because those families moved to Israel. So there was a lot of migration going both ways. 1967, another major conflict in the story of the modern Israeli state. This is known as the Six-Day War. Uh, this war resulted in the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the latter being where the conflict is most acute right now. It's right along uh, this Sinai, Sinai Peninsula by Egypt. Um, and since that time, Israel has continued to make some annexations, both East Jerusalem, so part of the old, uh, the holy city, the Golan Heights up near Syria, uh, and 
And with the annexation, there have been the establishment of settlements in those occupied territories. That's a um, source of constant disagreement and conflict because the Israelis set up the settlements, they claim they have the right to do so, but there are certain bodies of international law that are interpreted in certain ways that are deeming that those actions are illegal. That's a, an ongoing matter of dispute. Fast forward into the 1970s, 1973, there was the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur is the Hebrew for Day of Atonement. Sometimes it's called the Ramadan War. That's a reference to the major Islamic holiday that falls around the same time, or at least it did that year. This conflict is also known as the Fourth Arab-Israeli War. And that began, uh, that ran from October 6th to October 25th. And uh, that was a conflict between Israel and a coalition of Arab states, uh, with the key leaders being Egypt on one side and Syria on the other side. The majority of combat in this Yom Kippur War took place uh, in the Sinai Peninsula on the bottom and, of course, up near Syria, the Golan Heights. Uh, both of those areas have been occupied. They were occupied by Israel from 1967 uh, and then continued to, to be so. Um, Israel's objective in launching that war, why did they launch the Yom Kippur War, was to actually um, kind of get a foothold back into the region uh, to, to use the Suez Canal and control of the Suez Canal to kind of as leverage. Yes, sir? Egypt started the war, not Sorry, Egypt. Excuse me. I said Israel. I meant to say Egypt. Exactly. To use the Suez Canal as leverage uh, and to negotiate the return of the parts of the Sinai Peninsula that the Israelis had occupied since 1967 or had annexed since 1967. So again, you see the same pieces of land in question. Who's going to have control of this land? That war ended with some peace treaties um, with Egypt, uh, with Jordan, and um, led to the present uh, divvying up of property, so to speak. Now, if you want to learn more about the beginnings of the modern Israeli state, there are two resources I want to commend to you today, both of which I have read or viewed. The first is historical fiction. You might have heard of this book, Leah. It's called Exodus. It's a great novel. Uh, it's written from a more pro-Israel side, but it also has a balanced account of the events leading up to the Israeli state. It was made into a movie, I think, starring Paul Newman, but I recommend that you read the book rather than watch the movie. It's a page-turner. Uh, you'll learn a lot. You'll cry a lot. You'll be deeply moved. One of the best books I've ever read. Second is a mini-series called The Promise that was made by Channel 4 in the UK. You can actually see their faces, but that's the wall of partition between Israel and Palestine. You'll be looking at it bird's eye view. And that is another telling of the story uh, through the saga of a particular family. Again, pretty balanced. Uh, just gives you a lot of back knowledge, starting with the British Palestinian mandate and moving forward. That's a really, really good uh, miniseries. You can buy that on Amazon or what have you. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk a little bit about Christian support for Israel, for the return of Jews to the historic Jewish homeland. My former mentor, a longtime dear friend, I've mentioned him before, his picture of him is on my wall in there, uh, he was a scholar and he wrote this book. So I've learned a lot through him on this topic. This is a, uh, I'm actually reviewing this book right now. It's from InterVarsity Press. It's a slightly more accessible version of an earlier book he wrote for Cambridge University Press on the roots of Christian Zionism. <clears throat> Undergirding 
and aiding the rise of the modern Israeli state is this idea known as Zionism. Anyone heard that word? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Zionism is the belief, and this is how Don defines it. He's kind of he was the leading scholar and one of the leading scholars in the world on this. Is a belief held by some Christians and some Jews that the Jewish people today have a theologically based claim to a homeland in Palestine and the southern Levant. As it is commonly deployed by Christians, some Christians, the Zionist idea argues that the state of Israel's right to exist today, not biblical Israel, but the modern state of Israel, right to exist is based and legitimized by biblical teachings. Now, prior to the 20th century, prior to the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, the Zionist spirit was kind of alive and being cultivated, and it was the source of what's called the restorationist ethos. The restorationist ethos. And that was a vision that some Christians, in particular a lot of British Christians, championed about a Jewish return to a Jewish homeland. Um, They wanted a restoration. Remember, this was before World War II. This was before the Holocaust. So this idea was already out there. Uh, The restorationists did not necessarily anticipate the creation of a full-blown modern political state of Israel, but they did want to facilitate uh, migration of Jews back to the historic land of Israel if they wanted to go. So this, this, this idea was alive and out there. It should be noted at the same time that many people, including many Christians, have supported the existence of the modern Israeli state for non-Zionist reasons. So you can reach a certain conclusion, I believe Israel should exist, but you can reach it for different reasons. You can have different motivations. The Zionist motivation has been a powerful one, but it's not the only one. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you can be pro-Israel in a sense without being a Zionist. Zionist is an explicitly theological position, and that's key to the point I'm going to be kind of advancing over what comes. So where did Zionism come from? Actually, it goes back to the Protestant Reformation, so we need to rewind for 500 years. Um, <clears throat> talking about the 16th century into the 17th century. Now, in the context of medieval Christian theology dating back until at least the 13th century, so further back, Christians in that context, in high medieval theology, had emphasized that the Jews were, quote, not a people and had no positive ongoing significance in the context of Christianity. And so within that theological framework, no one was talking about sending Jewish people back to historical biblical Israel. Uh, In the I'm not going to go into this at great length, um, but I can put, point you to a book that does, Ad Nauseam. It's very painful to read. Uh, a History of the Church and the Jews. The Jews were not historically, from kind of the 4th century right up until the Reformation, really treated that well by the Christian church in Europe. Um, and so there wasn't much interest in the Jews. And when they did engage, it was, also, it was often coerced attempt, coercive attempts to convert. <clears throat> and so there wasn't much interest in, in and if they weren't coercing, then the other option was we don't care about them at all. They're not a people. Um, that began to change. That was a pretty common attitude in medieval theology. That well-entrenched attitude towards the Jews began to change with the Reformation. Uh, and in fact, in the centuries leading up to the Reformation, you see some initial intimations of a different view of Jewish people, a different theological view of Jewish people. Um, You see this in proto-Protestants like John Wycliffe, called the Morning Star of the Reformation, and Jan Hus out in Eastern Europe. And then the Reformation happens, and the fetters of medieval Catholicism are kind of taken off, and people begin to read the Bible, 
Everyone can read. If you're literate, you can read it, and you can read it in your own language. You can read in English, for example, not just Latin for the educated class. People begin to read, read the Bible fresh, begin to re-engage Scripture in a direct you know, Cindy could buy a Bible and read it. You couldn't do that before the Reformation. We take that for granted. You could not do that before the Reformation. And even if you got your hands on one, you weren't educated. It was in Latin. You had no idea what it was saying, unless you were well-educated. So reading the Bible, lots of preachers reading the Bible again, people in the congregation who could read and had enough money to buy a Bible. They weren't cheap at that time. Begin to re-engage Scripture. Begin to kind of read some of St. Paul's writings about the Jews and concluded that... Um, there was at some point in the future going to be a mass turning of Jews to the Christian faith. You know, the people who are ethnically Jewish, at some point in the future, there would be kind of a mass, uh, you might say, um, revival, as it were. Jewish people recognizing Jesus the Messiah, becoming Christians. They felt like the Bible anticipated this, and there are good reasons for that. Martin Luther holds this view, certainly the young Luther. He, he believed and longed for that to happen. Uh, and he believed that when that happened, we'd be really close to the second coming of Jesus. That's the young Martin Luther. The old Martin Luther, completely different. Went off the rails, became virulently anti-Semitic. I'll do a talk on that another time. It's, it's a fascinating story. Part of that was because he was disillusioned that the Jews were a conversion, weren't converting to Christianity, and therefore they were delaying the second coming. And so he got really angry. That's, that's kind of, you know. Uh, other Protestant... Reformed Protestant teachers on the continent over in Europe, like Martin Borjas and Wolfgang Caputo, they held that same sort of view that Luther held. But then there were different Protestants, like Martin Bootser, a very preeminent theologian, who held a different view. He strongly rejected that conclusion. So there was internal diversity of opinion around this issue. Despite these disagreements amongst Protestants, we do see a shift in their view towards Jewish people. We see ideas of a Jewish return to the Jewish homeland beginning to emerge. And that is especially the case in late 16th century England, when the idea of a biblically warranted return of the Jews to their historic homeland in the southern Levant, where Israel is today, uh, gained considerable traction. Why did it gain traction? I'll tell you a bit about this picture in just a moment. This is the Pope. It's a caricature, as you can tell. <laughs> Historian Robert O. Smith, who's spent a lot of time studying this to develop an explanation, asserted that during these years, the two greatest perceived threats to Protestant Christianity were, anyone want to guess? Catholicism, and the other one, Islam. So Roman Catholicism, the Pope, and Islam. A Jewish return to Palestine was seen as an antidote to both of those threats. And thus, there was a, it generated a lot of interest in trying to facilitate this, to make this happen. Okay, so how do we connect the dots? How do you get from, if this happens, then the, the, the bad Pope in Rome and the, the Saracen, you know, the, the, the Muslims, or the Mohammedans, as they would have been called, you know, the, those two threats will be neutralized. Great question. What's the logic there? A Jewish return, this kind of taps into what I just said about Martin Luther, it was thought would be precipitated by a Jewish mass, a mass Jewish return to the homeland would be would precipitate a mass Jewish conversion to Christianity, and when Jewish people began to convert in large numbers to Christianity, that marked the approach of the end, the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. And when Jesus came back, one thing that all Protestants were sure of is that the Pope would be thrown out, and so would Muslims. And so let's figure out how to make this happen more quickly. 
And so that's kind of, that's the logic there. And these ideas waxed and waned in 17th century England, and they waxed in 17th century New England, the United States, especially amongst the Puritans, the founders of New England. They were very Zionistic. And you can see here, of course, this represents the negative view of the Pope, who was referred to as the Antichrist. The, the Pope, in the context of 16th and 17th century Europe, was referred to by Protestants as the Antichrist. In fact, we have the Great Litany, which is a prayer that we'll be using during Advent, and again, in, uh, we'll be using it in Lent. The original version of the Great Litany, which is a beautiful prayer, the one that Thomas Cranmer wrote, actually has a stanza that prays against the Pope, the Antichrist in Rome. That has now been taken out of that prayer, so you won't hear it when you use it, but it was there. It reflects these attitudes. So the Pope is you know, depicted as a wolf in sheep's clothing, a vile beast. It says, Leo Pope Antichrist. That's Pope Leo in the center there. <clears throat> now, so you've got, you've got support for Zionism emerging out of Reformed theological circles in the UK, in, in England, and in New England. And then you've also got support that begins to emerge from other Protestant circles, namely the German Pietist movement. Anyone familiar with Pietism, German Pietism? It's kind of a, a sort of inner life spiritual, spiritual movement uh, that was a reaction to his theology that became really rationalistic, very centered in the brain and the head. And they said, that's, that's too much, you know. So they, they, they kind of left the established churches and had prayer meetings like this. Now, the Pietists also became ardent supporters of the Jewish people and the Jewish cause and their evangelism and their return uh, to the Palestinian land. Uh, they believed that Christian mission to Jews was very important and had been neglected for far too long, and God's honor was at stake because of that. This was a stream of Pietist theology. And the Pietists said, we need to get out there and evangelize the Jews, but not in a coercive way like medieval Christians did, you know. <coughs> Basically, in, in the Middle Ages, it was very common to meet a Jewish person and say, I want you to convert to Christianity, and if you don't, you're going to ta get taxed an extra 10%. It was, yeah, pretty unfair. And so the Pietists said, no, it needs to be voluntary, so we need to go and meet them and explain to them the gospel of Jesus. Uh, so that was their kind of approach. Now, this Pietist emphasis... And that emphasis uh, on speeding up the second coming by getting Jewish people back into the homeland and converted, they kind of converged. They converged. And by the 19th century, there was a robust drive by Victorian Christians, one very significant group in this area, to evangelize the Jews and then lobby heartily for their ability to move back to the historic Jewish homeland in Palestine over in the Middle East. Um, the original consensus had kind of been that the Jews will convert and then move back, and it sort of gets switched around this time. The Jews will move back, and then they will convert. But the end will still be the same. Jesus comes back. So that's kind of the idea that's floating around. Stemming from this, and this is something that's just fascinating, it is fair to say that a lot of Jewish buy-in, Jews who were living in Europe and in Great Britain, buy-in during this period to the restoration of their homeland, their historic homeland, was actually the result of 
Christian Zionists persuading them of this. So it was Christians in many cases who persuaded Jewish people living in Europe that they should go back to their homeland. That we, You would think it might be the opposite. Jewish people might want to go back. But actually, this desire to see Jewish people move back to the historic homeland was fostered by Christian evangelism to Jews. And that momentum would continue to grow right up until 1948 when Jewish people established their own Zionist organizations running parallel to the Christian organizations. There were societies like the Society for the Conversion of Jews. The Victorians established lots of these mission agencies. And then the Jews established them as well. That led to 1948 with the reestablishment of Israel, the modern Israeli state. And it has continued to gain momentum, this Zionist ethos, even in the 1970s and 80s with the charismatic revivals and awakenings that happened in the 70s and 80s. A lot of Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people, converted to Christianity during these charismatic revivals in the 70s and 80s. And because of that, new and emerging forms of Pentecostal Christianity became very Zionist. Because you had Jewish people recognizing Jesus the Messiah in the context of a charismatic church or a parachurch movement and then bringing in their Zionist ideas into those movements. And so it has continued to gain a lot of a lot of momentum. And then, of course, that has only widened, massively expanded with the rise of global Pentecostalism. Someone said to me the other day, what's the future of Christianity look like? Statistically, based on what's happening, the answer is Pentecostal. That's what it looks like. Does everybody get ready to raise those hands? <laughs> get them up. Um, so, with global Pentecostalism, Zionism has gotten a new shot in the arm, so to speak. The point is this. Christian Zionism has no fixed theological address. It has no fixed ecclesial address. You find Christian Zionism in the context of Reformed Presbyterian traditions, in the context of Anglican traditions, in the context of Pentecostal traditions. So it is a trans-denominational phenomenon. You find it in Catholicism. Does that make sense? It has no fixed theological. You can't say, oh, it's the Baptists who are Zionists. The Presbyterians aren't. Actually, within all the Protestant denominations, you will find people who adhere to a Christian Zionism. Yet how does this Zionist philosophy, again, the basic definition, as my friend Don wrote, is believing for theological reasons that the Jews right now today, for theological and biblical reasons, have a divine right to the land in which the Israeli state currently exists. How does that square? How does that really square theologically and biblically? And that's what I want to look at now because Christians have disagreed on this. So let me canvas several current Christian views on this question. I will stop real quick right now. There's one or two clarificatory questions. I'll take those before we move into looking at some of the theology and the theological debates. Okay. Either I'm communicating clearly or you guys are saying well. One of the two. Okay. Okay, view number one. That's Anne Graham Lott. Some of you will know her. So this is from her blog on October 17th of this year. She says, and she's writing about the current situation, but she's putting her theological cards on the table. She says, the Palestinians are caught up in what is surely a satanically inspired attack on the people and the land that God uniquely loves. And in support of this, she cites the Old Testament prophet Amos, chapter 1, which says, this is what the Lord speaks. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. 
because she took captive whole communities, I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that we will consume her fortresses. So she cites, she cites that. She goes on to declare, let the entire world be warned, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Qatar, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, North Korea, China, any other hostile anti-Semitic nation. If you attack Israel, God will take it personally. He will defend her at great cost to yourselves. And then she concludes with this prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Lord of hosts, God of angel armies, Lion of Judah, show up in extraordinary power. Give your people, she's talking about the Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people today, give your people resounding victory over their enemies. That's full-blooded Christian Zionism. That's what she's espousing. It's a view held, as I've said, by some Christians, some Jews, um, that... Israel, the modern state in existing, is kind of tapping into a position of special covenantal favor with God and a divine right to, to have that land in the contemporary moment. These views, perhaps even in a higher profile way, this full-blooded Zionism is expressed by Reverend John Hagee, who's head of the CUFI, Christians United for Israel, has 1.75 million members uh, globally. Uh, and he says, when you turn against Israel, you've lost your moral compass. So this is one of the largest pro-Israel organizations in the United States that is pro-Israel for explicitly theological reasons. A different view. A guy called Walter Brueggemann, renowned, respected Old Testament specialist. I've learned a lot from him over the years. He wrote this book called Chosen, Reading the Bible Amidst the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. That's not title, subtitle. It's not about the one that's just happening, but it's kind of about the prolonged conflict. Uh, he takes a recognizably different line, and he writes to challenge the sorts of full-blooded Christian Zionist views that we just saw in John Hagee and Anne Graham Lotz. Now, Brueggemann is not anti-Semitic. This is important to note. None of the people that I'm introducing today are anti-Semitic in this. There's no evidence for that, you know. Um, but what he is concerned with are specious attempts to theologically justify every and all action of the modern Israeli state because of a divine right to be on this land. And so he says he challenges how we misuse the scriptures by drawing simplistic connections between ancient Israel and the modern Israeli state. And since he is an Old Testament specialist, he's very well positioned to talk about these things. He says we need to, modern Christians, need to rethink the nature of divine election, which is to say Israel's status as God's elect, because this notion can be easily misunderstood and exploited for unsavory ends. And so he cautions against any position that would result in a form of theological exceptionalism, theological exceptionalism or privilege grounded in lineage claims or promises, especially when the ethical components that accompanied those ancient promises has been basically ignored. Stemming from this critique, Brueggemann challenges the so-called unconditional nature of Israel's elect status, the idea that they have an unconditional, unquestionable, divine right to live, Jew, ethnically Jewish people, to live on this land. He notes, and I think rightly so, that in the Old Testament, God gives Israel the land not as a right but as a gift. It's not a right, but it's a gift. And that that gift in occupying that land comes, and all you have to do is read the Old Testament to see this, it comes with tremendous moral duties and moral responsibilities. And the violation, the chronic violation, we shall say, 
God's not a perfectionist, but the chronic violation will call into question the perpetuity of that gift of the land. And he also stresses that in the New Testament, the land experienced a transformation of its significance, purpose, and identity, kind of the way that the concept of temple does. You know, in the Old Testament, temple's a really important context, and then Jesus picks that notion up and transforms it. Used to be the temple was a building, now we are the temples. And that's why Christians don't believe we need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, because God has built them right here. And so Bergman says the idea of the land goes through a similar sort of metamorphosis. Now, he's not opposed to the modern Israeli state, uh, but he does take exception to theologizing forms of theology that would put modern Israel as a corporate entity in some sort of favored spiritual status and make all of its actions beyond reproach by doing that. Does that make sense? So that's a more nuanced view. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what I call a sort of hostile view. God is against Israel, and Israel is, you know, is... The, the divine enemy of God or something. You know, it's the opposite of divine favor, divine opposition. This is what you find in a lot of recent statements from the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, but this is hardly the only mainline denomination to take this line. So they uh, equate modern Israel with apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, that's the analogy that's been used here. Um, and, you know, they've adopted divestment policies in an effort to kind of punish Israel, to weaken Israel. We're not going to invest in companies that are Israeli, for example. Uh, undergirding this belief is kind of a revulsion of all things colonial and imperial. You know, it's sort of uh, what they call post-colonial Western guilt, uh, and they see Israel as kind of a, a continuing form of colonization. They went into this land, took over it, and they've done it with the backing of the U.S., and so we're all kind of, uh, you know, collaborating, conniving, as it were, this <coughs> colonial enterprise, and, and that's horrible. The theology, theology that undergirds this is called liberation theology, which isn't all bad, but when taken to certain extremes, it can lead to strange positions like sort of hostility towards Israel in principle. That we're not talking about a surgical critique. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done this. It's more like you shouldn't exist. That's sort of, you know, strongly, uh, the best thing you could do is pack up and move back. You know, that kind of attitude. Exactly. They never say that. They never answer that question. Um, there's some neo-Anabaptist theology in this as well. I don't know if you know much about Anabaptist theology. Again, a lot of beautiful things theologically in that inheritance. But one of the hallmark calling cards of Anabaptist theology is that, you know, peace and peaceableness is the key, uh, the key kind of defining trait of the kingdom of God peaceableness, and so anytime there's war, conflict, violence, God can have nothing to do with that. Christians should have nothing to do with that. So Anabaptists, for example, would never recognize that a war might possibly be just, a just war. It does not exist in their, in their register. And a lot of the Anabaptist theology is also present in these denominational statements. Uh, they're just opposed to violence in principle. Doesn't matter who started it, whether you can make a good case for Italian, retaliating. What matters is if you're the people of God, you're always fully peaceable. You're a pacifist. Problem with that view, I think, is that it, it kind of inclines towards a view of Marcionism. That's an old heresy that says that we should get rid of the Old Testament. Just read the New Testament. That's kind of present there. The church declared that very early on as a heresy, as an unacceptable position. You can't cut the Old Testament out of the Bible. That's a very anti-Semitic move to make, too, as well. The Nazis wanted to do that. Yes, sir? Is that the same as replacement theology? Uh, they overlap. 
Think of it as a Venn diagram. Right. Yeah, these guys would not be replacement theology at all, but they have certain themes in common. Good question. Okay, so there are three different options. We've got the kind of full-blooded Zionism. We've got a more sort of middle critique, and then we've got this kind of anti-Israel for theological reasons view associated with some of the mainline denominations. You'll find this in the UMC, by the way, similar attitudes in certain circles of the UMC, the PCUSA. You'll definitely find it in the Episcopal Church. I read Michael Curry's statements last week. So... What I want to do now and in closing is just to lay out um, what I think, what for me seem some good biblical principles for thinking Christianly and appraising this situation Christianly. Uh, This is, you know, I'm not speaking with the authority of a church council or a church doctrine or ethics committee. This is just me as someone who's trying to read the Bible, to learn from people who read the Bible well and I trust and have kind of navigated this issue. And so I'm going to share some of that with you. Not beyond critique, but... um, always open to persuasion for a different view, but I think that you know, this, does, this is an approach that makes good use of, of what we learn in Scripture. So one way to frame the question, just to make it very contemporary and for this moment, is what's the proper response of the Christian in you know, re- reply or response to what's happening right now in Israel with, with the Israelis and, and Hamas in Gaza? Uh, are all of the Israeli offenses justified because they are God's people and defeating their enemies and defending the land God gave them? Everything is automatically justified because they're God's people and have divine right. There are some Christians who think that way, as we've seen. Uh, other Christians are outraged right now by Israel's slaughter of men, women, and children, um, and they're outraged by the support that our government is giving them right now. So you know, how do we navigate through these very different polarized perspectives? Um, more care, careful, I hope, biblical evaluation. I'm going to make some points along the way. <clears throat> First, there are Jewish Christians in Israel, and there are Palestinian Christians in Israel living in the land right now. I know both. I've met both personally. Sometimes they're really close friends. These are the people, like all Christians, these are the meek who will one day inherit not just the land but the earth. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. People of God. Their ethnicity doesn't matter. They both follow Jesus the Messiah. We know from Ephesians 2, 11 and following, that Jesus made peace, died to make peace between Jews and Gentiles. Friendships between Jewish Christians and Palestinian Christians are a beautiful instantiation of that peace. And therefore, our prayers and our labors should be especially devoted to heralding the gospel of Jesus the Messiah as the only truly lasting long-term hope between Jews and Palestinians. That's the most important thing I think we have to say as Christians right there. Palestinian Christians, Jewish Christians. Number two, the Bible does not teach that we should be partial to Israel or to the Palestinians in the present rebellion that both of them, not talking about the followers of Jesus now, but that both of them have against God, as if either of those groups, and by the way, both of them claim a divine right to the land, Palestinian Muslims claim a divine right because Muhammad descended on the temple at Dome of the Rock. And the Jews, of course, because the Abrahamic promise, you know, claim a divine right. 
Now, that statement, not being partial to either of those groups, the Bible does not explicitly teach that we should be partial to either group. That statement carries the following implication. Both sides should be treated with compassionate public justice in the same way that disputes between nations these days are generally settled, at least when we're doing it at our best. We're talking about the wise mingling of justice and mercy. Neither Jews or Palestinians can justify anything they do or be treated in any particular special way by virtue of claiming a present-day divine right to the land while living in rebellion against the one who made that land a gift of the covenant. Let me offer some biblical foundations for what I've just said. Okay, Israel was chosen by God from all the peoples of the world to be a focus of blessing in the history of redemption. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the earth, it was not because you were more in number, which is basically to say you didn't have great credentials, but I chose you anyway. He has set you, he has chosen you, set his sights on you, his affection, simply because he loves you. That's the gospel right there, by the way. Amen. Right in Deuteronomy. That history, of course, and being chosen by God, climaxed in the coming of God's Messiah, the eternal Son, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, fulfilling the one true Israelite who always worshipped God, whose will was always aligned with God. He fulfilled that promise, that covenant. Number two, in connection with that chosen status, from Deuteronomy 7, at that time, God did promise Israel the presently disputed land, that piece of geography, that territory. And that promise, as you'll know, goes right back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abraham, this is the land which I swore to Abraham. And I, sorry, it's in Deuteronomy 30, 34, but it's Moses, and God's reminding him of the Abrahamic promise. Moses, this is the promise that the land I was going to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your offspring. And Moses saw that land. He didn't get to go into it, but he died. But he saw the land. I've been to the place and stood where he looked out and saw the land. At the same time, it's very important to know that neither of those two facts, God choosing the Hebrew people to be his people, God promising this piece of land through Abraham and then bringing it into fruition through Moses' leadership, neither of those two facts means that Israel today, the modern Israeli state, has a present divine right to that land. Why do I say this? This is kind of the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because it's biblical... Non-covenant-keeping people do not have a right to hold the, divine, the land of divine promise which was given in covenant. Covenant-breaking forfeits covenant privileges. That's very clear in the Old Testament. After all, God said to Israel, Exodus 19, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples with all the benefits that come with that. If. In sum... The promises made to Abraham, including the promise of the land, to be inherited as an everlasting gift, only to be inherited as an everlasting gift by a true spiritual Israel, not a disbelieving, disobedient Israel. Now, I think today, few of you would disagree, uh, that today Israel, theologically, is a covenant-breaking people. I'm not using that pejoratively. I'm using it technically. There are... Lots of Messiah-trusting Jewish people in Israel. Again, I've met some of them. They are not covenant-breaking. They enjoy God's covenant favor right now because they follow Jesus. But as a whole, as an ethnic corporate unity block, Israel is actually defined explicitly by rejecting the Messiah Jesus. 
Otherwise, they would be a Christian nation, and they don't want to be a Christian nation. They're very explicit about that. The, the modern Israeli state is self-consciously not Christian, which is why if you are a Messianic Jew and you want to go back, every person who's ethnically Jewish through the mother's lineage has a right to go back. But if they find out you're a Messianic Jew, this is a Supreme Court ruling in the Israeli state, it can create a lot of problems for doing that. If they find out you're a Messianic Jew, so you're ethnically Jewish but you follow Jesus and you want to go back to Israel and they find out you're a Messianic Jew, it can be very difficult actually to immigrate back to the homeland. They will shut the door. That's a Supreme Court case. You can look that. You can Google that. So they are self-consciously not identifying with Jesus the Messiah. And theologically, again, I'm just making a technical statement, not a pejorative statement. Theologically, that means that they are in a state of treason, so to speak, insofar as the Jewish people as an ethnic corporate bloc are in rebellion against their king, the one who sent his son to save them. Read what Jesus says in Matthew 21, 33-41, the parable of the tenants. And a people in treason against her king cannot lay legitimate claim to a king's covenant-making promises and those benefits to the people. Again, I'm talking here just about theology, not sociology and politics. We'll come to that in just a second. <laughs> what I've said is a big theme of the Old and the New Testament. If you look at Daniel's prayer, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, the Old Testament, Daniel was in the exile. He was, God cast the Jews out of the land for covenant breaking. Daniel got sent off with a lot of other educated Jews to go live in Babylon City where he became a high-ranking government official. And there's a beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 where he says, you know, Lord, to you belongs righteousness, to us belongs shame. To the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the men of Judah, to us belongs shame, to all Israel. And that's why you've driven us away into these far lands. Because we were not faithful to the covenant. And so the gift of the land was therefore negated. Jesus makes the same point himself. In Luke 19, he stares with tears, stands with tears, looking out over Jerusalem. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that might make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, and they will not leave one stone stone unturned upon you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's the time of the visitation? That is uh, the arrival of Jesus. That's what that refers to, the coming of the Messiah. The Jews at the time of Jesus rejected him. They rejected the cornerstone, and the vast majority of Jews today still do that, again, accepting Messianic Jews. And in response to that rejection, Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruits, the Gentiles. Matthew 21, 43. St. John puts it like this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus says elsewhere, further explaining this reality, many are going to come from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, true worshipers of God. They're going to recline at the heavenly table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and some of the sons of the kingdom, ethnically Jewish, will not be at that table. So it comes to this. The greatest act of treason against God by Jewish people is the fact that when the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, came into the world as the Jewish Messiah, they rejected him, and in rejecting him, they decisively broke the covenant that God had made with the Jewish people in Abraham and therefore forfeit, at least for the time being, some of the privileges of that covenant. 
Point three, what does all this mean? One of the things that it means, as Paul puts it in Romans eleven fifteen, is that there is a certain present hardening of heart, hardening happening amongst Jewish people in the world. Again, this is a theological point. And so this suggests that we're living in that time that Jesus talked about, the time when the kingdom is going to be taken away from the sons of Abraham and given to other people, these Gentiles. And that will remain the case until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What are those times? Who determines those times? That's what I just said is Luke 21, 24. So that's a theological assessment of where we are right now. But that is not where the story ends. This present hardening of ethnic Israel is not the last word. This is something the Bible teaches as well. <clears throat> God has a saving purpose for Israel. This is what I think Romans 9 through 11 teaches. I recognize those are notoriously difficult passages to interpret, but I think this represents some of the clearer elements of those passages. All Israel will one day turn to the Lord Jesus as a group. That seems to be what St. Paul suggests. That's what a lot of scholars have concluded in studying Romans 9 to 11, which looks to the fuller salvation of ethnically Jewish people. The broken off branches, Jewish people, branches broken off the tree, are going to be grafted back in one day. And we should pray for that day. The day when the hardening will be lifted, that all eyes to Jesus will be open, that they would see Jesus not as their enemy or adversary, but as their Messiah, joining the church of Christ, the true Israel, the fullest Israel, resulting in one great tree of covenant love. I think that's what the future holds. That seems to be what Paul teaches in Romans 11. And I'd encourage you to give that a read. Now, there we go. We must not draw certain conclusions from what I've just said. For instance, we should not conclude that Israel's present rebellion against God, this is a theological thing, means that other nations have the right to molest her. They do not. Israel still has human rights among the family of nations, even though she may not have covenant rights before God and covenant privileges. She has human rights just like all nations do. And so now we're moving into a socio-political understanding of Israel, one that's not theological. I don't think that any nation, because it's pagan or unbelieving, should be treated unjustly. And so therefore, modern Israel should not be treated unjustly. Her neighbors should not be allowed to molest her, to inflict terror and violence on her. And it's worth noting here that in the Old Testament, nations that gloated over God's disciplining of Israel which he spoke of as his son, a father who loves his son will discipline the son. God, the father of Israel, disciplines Israel. You know, things, difficult things happen. They get sent into exile. But in the Old Testament, it's very clear that uh, the nations that gloated over that, that sought to exploit that or use it opportunistically, well, they got something coming from God down the road. <laughs> Isaiah 10, when the Lord has finished his disciplining work with his son Israel, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And I think that applies to all nations, by the way. And now we come to our concluding statement. The upshot out of all this, theologically at least, is that the first action, the first plea of Christians to both Jews and Palestinian Arabs 
The first thing we say in all this, and we continue to say with every breath we have until we die, is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the first thing we say. In accompanying this, and note with care, there is a recognition that the inheritance of the land, which will actually be the entire earth, based on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the inheritance of the land by God's people, God's people Jewish, God's people Gentile, all together, that is something that we do not usher in. So those who believe that you know, there's a divine right that's still an active effect right now, you know, we've got to get back to the land and, and we're going to kind of facilitate and usher in uh, the restoration of God's people to God's land to the world. That's not something that, that we manage and facilitate for doing that for theological reasons. That's something that actually happens when Jesus comes back. He will manage that. He will facilitate that when he comprehensively establishes his kingdom. And the meek will inherit not just the land, but the earth. And so until then, we must not take up arms for the reason of divine inheritance or divine right. If anything, if we want to act theologically, what we do is we lay down our lives for the sake of others that they might have life. But at the same time, within the, the, the global family of nations, within principles of international justice, um, we look to defend Israel when her neighbors molest her. We look to help her root out terror when terror causes havoc and crisis and catastrophe. We don't do that because we believe in a divine right to be there. I think biblically you can't really make that case. We do it because it's the decent thing to do in accord with the international principles of justice and compassion, which the Bible reinforces as well. And so we act out of a commitment to compassion and public justice, and we do that in light of mutually agreed upon principles of justice, such as the ones that our countries established, the Geneva Accords, et cetera, et cetera. We also have to take into, my, into account practical feasibility, because you always have to do that in this world. And if I had to sum up what I just said, I would say that we, we, we support Israel in the present conflict because it is the decent and just thing to do as we collectively among the nations understand that. We do not do it in the manner of another crusade, for example. The crusades were theologically motivated. We're going to go take back this land and give it back because that, you know, divine right. So we don't think of this in those terms as a crusade. We think of it in different terms as protecting a nation as we should do for any nation when her neighbors inflict terror and molest her, if that makes sense. Um, and so at the end, what, what you hopefully have seen here is that it leads to an action, which is what we're doing right now, at least in this country, to protect and defend Israel. But it invites us to think carefully about why we support that. The motive matters. The reason matters. Jesus is always clear about that. Motives and reasons matter. The external action may be the same. The United States supports Israel. We help her overcome terror and so forth. But we don't do that for a theological reason because, quite frankly, we don't have a theological reason to do it. But we do have good political and sociological reasons. We treat all nations with decent same respect as we would want to be treated. Golden rule, just applied at the political level. All right, we've covered some serious ground. <laughs> yeah, but I just want to you know, treat this with care and kind of give some historical context. Uh, think about the theology that's at play at this. And then also think about you know, good reasons for doing what we are doing to help in that ghastly situation. I've got about two minutes, so if there are any follow-up questions, I'm happy to address them. And again, just 
That is not, what I've offered is not a definitive view. That's just the way I'm thinking through this. And I think there are good biblical reasons for it. But, you know, always go back to scripture and persuade it otherwise if a good case can be made. I know George has a good question because he always does. God's going to judge all nations in this. The United States and how we react. That's right. So whether we're bad or good or what. And he always punishes those that turn away from him. I think we're trying to turn away from him now. So hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get it back together. And I should add, some of you might think, well, Nations get assaulted by, you know, guerrilla groups and terrorists and, you know, mutinous governments. All of it just happened in um, Niger, you know, over in Africa. Why don't we always uh, intervene? The, the reality is that's the practical feasibility. We can't do it all the time. We can't stretch ourselves that thin. I think there's a good case to be made for Israel because they have been a longtime friend of the U.S., you know. So if you have to choose, you prioritize your friend. You know, if you have to choose, and the reality is that we do have to choose. We can't intervene everywhere all the time. But with Israel, we do have a longstanding friendship so that you can make a case for the present intervention, say, versus not doing something um, in Bolivia, you know, where there might be an equal need. Another question? Sources I commended at the very beginning, the novel by Leon Uris, Exodus, and in that mini-series, The Promise, they do a great job at help, helping you get into shoes. That's why they've been so valuable to me. Yes, sir. There are what looks to me like a lot of uninformed behind maybe both sides, but especially it's disturbing to see Israel's actions being dismissed and opposed by some 